Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Luke Ellis, the CEO of Man Group, the largest publicly traded hedge fund company at $135 billion in assets across five distinct investment engines. Luke is also the deputy chairman of the Standards Board for Alternative Investments, or SBAI, and previously joined the show to discuss the organization alongside Mario Terrian from CDPQ, and that episode is replayed in the feed. This time around, our conversation is focused on Luke and his wide-ranging wisdom about markets and asset management businesses. We talk about his start in the business, his decade in the heyday of hedge fund of funds, and the last decade at the helm of Man Group. In the process, we touch on the role of CEO, Luke's perspectives on recruiting, growth, incentives, technology, private equity, and risks going forward. Please enjoy my conversation with Luke Ellis. Luke, great to see you again. Lovely to see you, Ted. Well, I thought it would be fun. We don't have to go all the way back. I know that some people in this business got bar mitzvah money and started trading. I think you went even further back than that. But why don't you take me back to your early exposure in the hedge fund area? I didn't really think of it as hedge funds when I first got exposed, but so in what would have been 91, I took over the equity derivative business at JP Morgan that was tiny at the time. It was 10 people and was losing a little bit of money and 5 million of revenue, I think. I don't think. We were trying to work out how we made money out of this thing. 
so we were a money center bank and we didn't really have equity clients and they were trying to build a cash equity business and I was trying to make the equity derivative piece work. And what we realized was we needed to do some stuff that was basically prop trading. And we started doing various things that now we would think of as classic hedge fund strategies. We had convert arb, we had cash futures arb, we had event arb, we had those days there was a lot of things that were called arb and you could make money out of them. And when I left, the first phone call I got was from Harlan Corumbays at HPK, who said, so I guess you're starting a competitor. And I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, I presume you're starting a big hedge fund. It's like, oh, no, I hadn't really thought of it. <laughs> but that was when I realized really what I'd been running embedded within JP Morgan, as well as a client business, was something that looked like a big hedge fund. So why did you leave at the time? So I'd had the most brilliant boss for seven years. And when he got moved to do something else at JP Morgan, there was a question of who would get his job. And there were a couple of candidates, including me, somebody else got the job and not talking out of school, but where the previous guy was the best boss I've ever had. I managed six months with the worst boss I've ever had. I'm not even sure it was six months before it's like, yeah, this is not the right thing for me to be doing. So I left not knowing what I was going to do next. I've been lucky to have had a successful career in finance. If you have any successful career in finance, the point where you're worrying about money for life goes pretty quickly. And so my view is you should use the fact that you can afford to live. That gives you options, gives you choices, and you should take those. And so I haven't ever been one of these people who plans his career out 20 years in advance. I do something when I enjoy it and I do it really hard. And if I don't enjoy it, I stop doing it. And I figure I'll be able to work out something else to do afterwards. And if I can't, I'll retire and have a nice time. But often I found some really interesting things to do. So how long was that first stint looking for what that next thing would be? It was about six months. And one of the people I started chatting to was my first boss who was telling me about this business he had started, which was called a fund of hedge funds or a fund of funds. And I never heard of a fund of funds at the time. Again, in a bank, you didn't really see those things in those days. And he was talking about it and he said, yeah, the problem is there's too much for me to do. I need somebody to help me get it going. And I said, look, I'll come in and spend a couple of days, see if I can give you some suggestions and some ideas. And I left 10 years later. <laughs> I think it was like four years before we even had a contract on what I was doing. It was, I went in, but it was a great fun run. The fund of funds had, I think, 50 million under management when I joined. It might have been a bit less. And it had 15 billion and change when I left. That was the golden era of fund of funds. So it was good. And in a similar way to the earlier thing, Basically, it seemed to me pretty clear that the business had gone as far as it could do as an independent thing, and it would be better part of a bigger organization. And the valuations people were paying for fund of funds in the mid-later, mid-2000s were really quite impressive. And I thought we should sell the business. We got to the level of offers and legal documents and dotted lines and my partner, whose baby it was, couldn't bring himself to sell. So after two of these things, I said, you know, I've got the signing pen in a drawer. It's just never been used. I said, look, I'll tell you what, you buy me out, I'm going to retire. And he bought me out. And that was late 2007, which feels like some good timing. Yeah, so exit moments are a good thing. Talk to me a little bit about what you saw and learned over those 10 years as you were building up the Fund of Funds business? So it was a fascinating time. So it went from the beginning, it was really hard for people to launch a hedge fund. And the amount of money they thought was needed to get a fund going was 50 million was like a big launch type of thing. And Fund of Funds were essentially the only route to getting going. It was either running around family offices trying to raise a million dollars at a go, because in those days, they 
really weren't big family offices putting large amounts of money out or sort of fund of funds. And so we were at the beginning, the foundation of a number of what are now famous hedge fund names. And by the time I finished, everybody could raise as much as they could possibly want. I learned a couple of things which to me were super important. One is about the road to hubris and the fact that hubris is the enemy of further success because we saw it every day. One of my analysts at the time had a great expression. She said, our job is to turn millionaires into billionaires and they never say thank you. <laughs> and it was true. There was a whole load of people who were leaving banks or somewhere where they had a million or two or whatever. And we would put them in business by giving them money. And then a few years later, when they were running a lot of money and making a lot of money, and suddenly we were the scumbags of the world and they didn't want us as investors because we weren't cool capital. And I learned a lot about hubris. And that made a big difference to me. There was a lot about how you try to understand who was good and bad at what they were doing. But the big thing that I learned out of it is... If you live in the beta world, asset allocation and forward asset allocation and having a strategic allocation and tactical allocations and trying to move money, do some market timing of when you move between different assets or different geographies makes all sorts of sense. It's hard, but it makes a lot of sense and you can add a lot of value. On the other hand, if you live in the alpha space, either we couldn't do it or I don't think you can do it. And it doesn't really matter between the two. Yeah, we spent an enormous amount of time in conference rooms, doing asset allocation meetings, trying to predict where did we think there was going to be alpha next year? Was it going to be an event year where there's going to be more alpha in stock picking in Europe than the US that, in the way that you would with an asset allocation in beta space? And when we analyzed how we got on with all of that, we spent an incredible amount of time. And if we were generous to ourselves, we added zero value. <laughs> if you were a bit less generous, we took value away. And what we came to realize was if you started with, A, it's nigh on impossible to predict where there will be alpha. But also if you started by saying, I want one of those, and then you went to look for what was available, there was a real negative selection bias in terms of who had capacity available, who would let you in, who would. And so what we kept getting in those asset allocation was average managers. And in alpha space, average managers lose money. You don't make alpha unless you are exceptionally good. And people think as long as you're reasonable, you'll do all right. Good isn't good enough. You've got to be great. And so we changed our whole mindset over time to thinking of it much more as look at as many different managers as you can find and look to see whether we think there's a repeatable source of alpha. And if there's a repeatable source of alpha and if they're the right sort of people you want to be in business with and all those sorts of things, there isn't the hubris, then you look as to do you already have one of those in the portfolio or is it diversifying? And so the portfolio construction was at the end, not the beginning. And, you know, if you're running a long only bonds plus equities portfolio, portfolio construction has to come first. And the selection of the assets is a definite second. In an alpha portfolio, it's the other way around. And it really, really affects the way I think about building man, because I use the same idea that we look for alpha first and then work out whether it's diversifying or not. I want somebody that does this because that's a big market segment. Before we turn to your next retirement and next re-engagement, either from that period of time or since, what did you find beyond the absence of hubris that were some of the indicators of someone's ability to be at that top echelon of generating alpha? It's a difficult thing to generalize, I think. It's very easy to say the things that said there wasn't alpha. You have to have a repeatable process. It doesn't happen that one day you're a growth investor and the next day you're a value investor, that you're a bit of macro and then you're a bit of bottom up. And you're. I don't believe in that. I don't think there's any one right way of running money. But I do think for individuals, personality, I guess, are hard. 
their skills and their personality. There is a way that suits somebody and there are ways that don't suit them. If you've got the personality to be a value investor, that is a particular type of personality. You've got to go against the crowd the whole time and they tend to be fairly dour in mindset and it takes a certain thing. And if you're that personality, there's no point trying to think you can pick the next 50 multiple growth stock that's going to go to 60 because that's about shooting for the moon. So I always like people who understand what they're good at and don't try and do the stuff they're not good at. I like people or processes where their process is in tune with the market. They push hard. And when their process is out of tune with the market, they don't push hard, but they don't do something different. So you can think of it as if your average vol over time is supposed to be 10, when you're in tune with the market, you should be running at 15 vol. And when you're out of sync with the market, you should be running at 5 vol. And a lot of managers didn't understand that. They were like, I have to push this hard all the time. And the things you worried about were people, you know, if somebody pushes extra hard when they're having a bad run, that's a, to me a really bad sign, if you sort of mean. Was there anything else on that? No, well, I'm sure we'll think of things as we talk through. You know, I was reading your book the other day, plug for your book, and I was thinking of a number of things where, yeah, yeah look, I, yeah, I recognize that. And there's a lot of things which I never wrote down, but we knew were triggers of, no, that's not working. You know, that's a really good thing to see, and that's a bad thing to see. I'm kind of curious. You had mentioned selling your stake in FRM at the top. There are a lot of people that sound a lot like you're deeply engaged in investing. There's almost like a trader mindset. There's an investor mindset, value investor, growth investor, but that who don't always at the same time seem in tuned with the business that they're in. And I'm really curious, where did you come to having that lens so that not only were you spending your days thinking about investing, but you also had grown this business and saw, you know what, this is a time to sell at a capital allocation level at the company level. At heart, it's about the personality I am. I would fully recognize I've never been the person to do bottom-up stock picking. I have a view about individual names. I can understand people doing it well, doing it badly. But one of the things is I've been at JP Morgan. They sent me to run the equity derivative business as a business head in 91. So what, I'd have been 27 when they sent me. And I've been a manager of businesses and people and processes for a long time now. And it really interests me. I think one of the things people get wrong in trying to pick managers is they try and argue with a manager about a particular stock pick. And if the manager agrees with them about the stock that they've got, then they're a good manager. And if they don't agree with them, they're a bad manager. I never approached the problem like that. And I was looking for managers who had good process, good skills, and who weren't letting the business stuff get in the way. If hubris is the biggest enemy of alpha, the second biggest enemy is taking too much capital into a strategy. And I would love it if we'd had the ability to stop people doing that, but you didn't as a third-party investor. I always thought those business issues really mattered to whether somebody was thinking about it properly. And nowadays, you've got a lot more separation between in successful hedge funds between the people running the business and the people running the money. And it's not all the person running the money gets to do whatever they want. You look back then in early 2000s, the classic hedge fund had PM turned superhero with a COO business manager who was an accountant who had stopped doing the spreadsheet on the accounting, but was supposed to do everything else. And that was never a good balance for people making good business decisions. So roll forward now, you retire a second time, you come back to man, and you've evolved to being the CEO. How do you define in that lens of investing in business? Clearly, you're the head of the business. What is your role today? I'm at a stage in life where I'm not sure I need new friends. But every now and again, I have to go to a dinner party and you sit next to somebody you don't know. And if I don't know them, I, I don't really want to sit there and talk about my job particularly. 
And so I, I learned this slight defense mechanism, which when people say, what do you do? I say, well, pretty much I do HR and admin. <laughs> and most people, that stops them talking to you. And they talk about other things and we could talk about what's going on in the world and whatever. And that's more interesting to me. I think the truth of the job of a CEO of a business like this, I mean, the, the number one thing I do and the dominant thing I do is about helping people be the best they can be. And so it is, I joke as HR, but I mean, it is that thing of helping people excel, helping people be as good as they can do. That's about creating the right culture. It's about getting the right people in. It's, it's stopping the hubris in the people doing well and boosting the confidence in the people where it's going badly. It's all of those sorts of things is we're a decent sized organization, right? We're 1500 people. Do I know every single one and every bit of their family history? Can I say hello to everyone and know something about them? Absolutely. And do I know everything about the 300 people that take the risk and drive the returns and other main client people? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think of my job as spending that awful word quality time with all of them to make sure they're as successful as they can be and to empower them. That's the first thing I do. And the second is I basically help people make decisions. So I like making decisions. I, I enjoy that. And I try to make it as easy for other people to make decisions. So if I'm not talking about people, the other thing I do most of is somebody comes in and says, we've got this opportunity. Do you think we can do this? I'll make some suggestions, make some throw over. Let's say, okay, what about doing this? I'll go, okay. And in man, if I say, okay, and that means, yeah, go ahead and do it. And you're empowered to go and make the other decisions, the details. You're empowered to go and find the right people to do it. I love empowering people to get on and do things. And the okay is, yeah, decision made. We don't do stuff by memo and committee and so on. It's like, yeah, we need to do that. Here's how we do it. Yeah, okay. And on you go. And so I do a lot of decision sort of that. And then the small things, small by time, they're very important. But I enjoy seeing clients, but it's a bit hard in the COVID world. I probably only spent 10% of my time with clients. Clients are obviously super important, but that's not very much. And the other thing people imagine I spend time on is the corporate governance stuff of running a public company. Honestly, that is very little time and effort. It's less than 10% of my time. And I've run a private business. I've run a public business. I spent more time on shareholder issues running a private business than I do running a public business. There's a set of information. We provide it to the shareholders. I do a certain number of conversations with the shareholders. And otherwise, that's it. And so maybe it's two weeks a year that's actually used up in the advent of running a public company. Under the sleeve of recruiting that you mentioned... And this probably gets in a little bit to where you're sitting in the ecosystem of the industry. With 300 different risk takers, how do you think about the need for and the process of recruiting the 301st? So we are constantly looking for talent. I think that there are two broad groups to it. So one is we try to bring in lots of young, smart people that we will try and train up and will be future risk takers and future salespeople and so on and so forth. But the other is about adding people, teams. We make a lot of new products organically, but we also hire a lot of new teams or we buy businesses, or we do. There's quite a bit of things in the middle of those two. Somebody here came up with a horrible expression of the acquihire, 
where you find people that have got a small hedge fund that's running 100 million, which is a non-economic thing. You're hiring them, but you're really absorbing the business and absorbing their fund and turbocharging it with our infrastructure. And this is where it really links back to what I was saying earlier about my fund of funds experience. So we don't say we want one of those. We don't say we want a telecoms team or we want a US equity team or whatever. We don't have a discretionary long-only US equity offering that we're out there pushing because we haven't found a team that we think does that in a way that has consistent alpha over time. That's a massive market, right? It's the biggest asset management market out there. But if we can't find somebody with alpha, we don't want it. So we look at a lot of teams and businesses, I mean, hundreds a year. I've got a different team of people whose job is to do the screening on individuals and teams and a different one on businesses, but they meet in the middle because at some point a business is a team and vice versa. And we screen as many different things as possible. And we're out there trying to talk to as many of the possible things that might be interesting in the future as possible. So we all get to know each other. And what we're doing is first and foremost looking for, is there what we consider a repeatable source of alpha? That, as you know, gets rid of 90% of the things, maybe more than 90% of the things. So that gets rid of an awful lot that you don't have to spend any... If it passes that, the second is the test of do they believe in the same things we believe in? Will they fit into the culture? It's honestly, the shorthand is I have a very, very strong no arsehole policy. I don't believe in this thing that you should put up with bad behavior from somebody if they make enough P&L. Because I think one bad apple creates a whole mess of bad behavior. And it's better to have none and have people who are pulling in the same direction, who put clients first, who recognize the clients are the ones taking all the risk in this game. So they have to pass that test. And if they pass that test, then the third one is that we don't want to do something we already do. So if we found a team that does something we already do and we thought it was better than the one we have, well, that's an upgrade. But I don't want two teams doing the same thing. I think if you look at a number of the problem things in history and you see that the bit of internal competition often creates bad behavior because people are competing with each other and then they start the temptation to cut the corner against the person sitting next to you becomes great. So we don't want anybody who thinks of life as an internal competition. We compete with the people outside the building, not the ones inside the building. And then the last bit is about making economics work. Can we, the cost of the team, the future revenues, the economics for the client. And in that, one of the differences, this is a, I don't know, I mean, I might call it an ethical difference. Somebody would call it a philosophical difference. Somebody might call it a religious difference. I firmly believe that the client needs to get the majority of the returns, needs to get the majority of the alpha. And so we won't do something which, while it might make a net return for the client that the client might be interested in, but where 60% of the, of the alpha needs to go in fees. It's a sort of philosophical question of if you can make 10% of gross alpha, but you have to pay six away in fees, so there's 4% of net alpha left for the client, is that a good thing for the client because they get 4% alpha, or is it a bad thing because... 60% gone in fees. We do things where we can make the economics work for us, the people that work for us, for the business, for so on, where it's in the 20 to 30% of alpha in fees. So there's a bunch of threads in what you're describing that take me to this question of as the CEO and you think about capital allocation at the business level in any business, right? There's all these four or five key drivers of how you could spend your cash flow, whatever's balance sheet. How do you think about there's this organic growth of hiring new talent? There's this acquisition of teams that kind of acquire or whatever the phrase is. And then the different levers on the corporate balance sheet when you put on the cap of the CEO of a business and capital allocation for the business itself. 
One of the interesting things of asset management is that that problem is remarkably easier than it is in most businesses. There is a weird thing. If you rank all of the industries in the world from left to right based on the margin, typical profit margin in the industry, and on the left-hand end, you get things like retail and some of the like cleaning services, those sorts of things that, if they're lucky, are a 0% margin. And they think 2% is heroic. And at the other end, you get tobacco and social media that have the highest margins. And the incredible thing is asset management as an industry is way nearer the social media end than it is the outsourcing end. It's a sort of 30% margin industry and some parts are significantly better than that. And one of the things that's remarkable is all the things that are to the right that have higher margins than the industry are things which are addictive. And the reason tobacco and alcohol and social media, I mean, they're basically addictive things that make money out of the addiction. And like there's asset management and you look at the industry and it on paper is super competitive with millions of players. And actually the margins are remarkably good. And so we don't have a scarce capital problem from the business point of view. We generate more capital than we can deploy. And so the constraint is always our ability to execute on good ideas. We've always got good ideas, but there's a limit to the number of great people you can find. And even with great people, there's a limit of the number of things they can do at any one time. And so if we're going to maintain the execution standards that we have in terms of doing things really well, there's just a speed you can grow at. And if we could find more people of the right quality, we would hire more people. If we find more teams of the right quality, we'd hire more teams. I'm not constrained by cash flow or capital. We're constrained by the bar, which we set very high to the people we want in the firm. I wonder if you could talk a little bit of the strengths and weaknesses of size. And in particular, like a lot of what you're talking about, you started off on the fund of funds at 50 million. You sold your stake when it's 15. You're now overseeing 130. There is this notion that size is the enemy of performance, that there's bandwidths on scale. So why don't you start there and talk about how you think about the constraints that you have because of the size of the asset base? This is a subtle thing because size is absolutely the enemy of alpha at an individual strategy level. At a firm level, size is a benefit to an ability to generate alpha and an ability to generate profits for the business. And so what do I mean by that? So one of the things that I believe passionately, and it comes from my fund of funds days, is in any individual strategy, any individual team, the size that they can run and generate alpha is a constrained thing. There is nothing that is size unconstrained, which is alpha. Mathematically, you would expect that as you increase the assets in a strategy, the alpha would drift down in some relatively linear fashion. Double the assets, maybe you can get some extra alpha, but the alpha would go down by 50%. What I experienced in investing in funds is alpha maintains much more than people expect for a certain period of time in a strategy certain size growth in a strategy. But once it starts to drift off, it collapses and goes negative. And once you fall off the cliff, you can't get back up the cliff. And I spent lots of time trying to intellectualize why it was like that. And my conclusion in the end was at some point, the market finds your footprint. We always used to joke it was Medallion found the footprint. And got in front of everything you wanted to do. And it's not really medallion, but it's I'm sure they're part of it. The market finds your footprint and gets in front of you. And then suddenly, everything you try to do is a problem, not a success. Lewis Bacon used to say that you want to trade the market. The moment you are the market, you're dead. It's another version of that same thing. So 
at the individual strategy level, we are very strict about shutting things. And so whether it's a particular strategy or a particular fund, things are, everything has a capacity constraint and we shut them at the lower of the number the team thinks it's starting to affect the way they're investing or we as management think it's the lower of those two. So we'll never make a PM team process take extra money if they don't feel comfortable with it. But equally, there are times we say, no, no, you can't take any more. You're supposed to be in mid-cap names and 20% of your portfolio is now in mega-cap names. That's changing what you're doing. And so each strategy. Now, the way we can scale to 130 billion is by having lots of strategies. And so we're always looking to add new strategies. So rather than growing any individual strategy to being a massively big fund or a strategy, we cap each one and we grow by adding as many more different strategies as possible. And where size helps with that is your ability to recruit those people is much better when you've got assets and scale and the speed to profitability is much better when you're putting everything through the same infrastructure because it scales very well. We make all of everything after the alpha generation goes through the same infrastructure here. We have a hundred different strategies put through a single infrastructure. The infrastructure is more expensive than if you had one strategy, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper than having a hundred of them. And so the shareholders get paid by that efficiency and the platform encourages people to come. But we definitely believe you have to shut individual strategies and you have to be really diligent about that. And we have a very rigorous process on individual strategies and funds and so on of looking at capacity constraints. And we've always got things that are shut. And by definition, our most successful strategies are hard closed. And people go, well, gosh, as a public company, aren't you motivated just to take money in? Well, my answer is no, because as a public company, we trade at a double-digit multiple. That means the firm's got to be around and succeeding for 10, 12, 15 years. I have to think long-term. And you know, if it was my own personal business, I might be tempted by, hey, I could get an extra $20 million in my pocket this year if we take more money into that strategy, even if it might blow up. And you know, money today to an individual is more important than it is to an organization, actually. So it doesn't create a pressure on us to take money in. So at the micro level, size is a problem. But at the firm level, actually, we've turned it to an advantage. How do you create incentives at the individual portfolio manager level such that they are aligned in making that assessment of the trade-off between managing more capital with the slight deterioration of alpha and just maximizing the alpha potential? In the end, I don't think compensation is the way that you create behaviors. Compensation matters. People in this industry get paid a lot of money. One should never not treat the process of how people get paid seriously. But I don't believe in using compensation as a management tool. And so we want portfolio managers who respect their clients, who put the client's interests first, and think about how does me taking more money in affect my existing clients? And if it disadvantages your existing clients so that you can make a bit of extra management fee, we want people whose natural reaction is to go, no, that's the wrong thing to do. That's a cultural thing and a management thing, and it's not very difficult, and, and it's not an incentive formula that creates that behavior. One of the other characteristics of some of the high-margin companies you talked about, particularly the more recent ones, is they're all technology-driven businesses. And given the resources you have, I'm curious how you thought about the use of technology, both in portfolio strategies and in the business as a whole. What it says on the front page of our website is we're a technology-driven asset manager. It's technology that drives this firm. So we are order of magnitude 70% quant. So from a pure mass point of view, we're way heavier quant than the industry. 
I like our discretionary businesses. All of the children are equally interesting to me, but we are definitely heavily quant. But even anywhere else, we use technology to drive everything we do. One of the interesting things is it's sort of more than a third of the firm are technologists. And beyond that, I think the last number is more than half of the firm has an active Python license. So Python's one of the main coding languages we use. More than half the firm has a license and we're paying for license because they use it. It's like even the people that are not technologists are using technology to make them smarter, quicker, better. And we use technology in the quant process. It's how you generate your alpha ideas. In the discretionary process, it's how you let the portfolio managers spend their time thinking about the things they have value add. The ability to interview a CEO is at this stage something computers are rubbish at. So we want the PM spending time on that because they're really good at it relative, the discretionary ones relative to a computer. But the process of finding out what all of the brokers think and where the broker models are relative to each other, that is much easier done with a piece of technology. The whole point about a CEO doing an earnings call is to make it boring. In the old days before Reg FD, it used to be to pump the stock. And then... Reg FD led to people having liability if they say something that's too aggressive. Now, it's really important that if you've got a stake in a company, you listen to the earnings call. But listening to more than a couple in a day, and you want to jump off the bridge, that thing. And so you want to know what other companies in the sector are doing. You want to know what suppliers are saying about things. You want to know what competitors are saying about things. And so we use technology to build a map of all of the other companies that are important to a particular individual company. And, you know, it's an AI process that generates those supplier lead lag type of relationships. Like for a big company like an Apple, it cares about more than 350 different companies of different sorts. And they have different types of relationships. You need to understand how those work. And then there's a process of listening to all of those earnings calls. While a human trying to listen to 350 earnings calls a quarter is not a life. So you could go and employ 35 people to do that, but that's really inefficient financially because you're just looking for information and nuggets. And, and so we use technology to screen all of those for the interesting information that feeds back into the, either into a comp process or feeds into the, discretionary PM for them to go, actually, I need to go and find out about that because that matters. Or yeah, there was nothing very interesting in that call today. And then our execution is the other side of execution in markets today is a high frequency trader. Whatever you think, the other side of your trade, whether it's a stock trade, a bond trade, an FX trade, it's essentially a high frequency trader. So if you go in thinking you could call your friendly broker and work an order and that they'll you're going to a nuclear war with a knife and so we have very good technology to compete and we're not trying to compete for high frequency trading but we're we know that's who we're trading with so we need to be able to obfuscate our trading from them you want to hide your footprint we don't have a big operational team because the technology does all of the work in there we don't have to have a huge compliance team because the technology does the work. In so many of these things, you can use technology to make you smarter, faster, and more efficient. I'm curious, are there any areas of technology where you thought they could be value-added, perhaps to an investment process, and did some experimentation with it and then found that it really didn't add much? So there's lots of that. But equally, you have to keep experimenting. And one of the things that happens a lot in this industry is people have a go at something. We'll come back to this one later when you ask about pet peeves. People have a go at something, and if it doesn't work, they throw it in the bin and they never look at it again. And that isn't the right way to do it. And equally, if they find something that works, they do it, and then they stop investing in it. They stop doing continuous research. The reason that markets are so fascinating and so brilliant, and frankly, these jobs are so much fun, is because they're constantly changing and evolving. 
And the fact that something didn't work two years ago doesn't mean it doesn't work today. The fact that something did work two years ago doesn't mean it works today. You have to be constantly conducting experiments. So we are testing out technology, but we're doing an awful lot of controlled experiments and actually constantly got a small proportion of the things we do being done by things that weren't working as well in order to see whether they now work as well to tell you what you haven't learned to tell you when the market's picked up what you're doing so that's a big thing i think that the second thing is the speed of progress moore's law continues to apply and so computing power means things work today that didn't work two years ago because you can now process it in time similarly the volume of data explodes on a minute-by-minute basis, and that lets you do new things. So you always want to keep an open mind. But the other side of it is we should be clear that if you're doing research looking for cancer tumors on x-rays, that they look for, there's a lot of signal And while there's some noise, there's a lot of signal to the noise. In financial markets, the vast majority of what happens is just noise. And so you have to be very careful to not try to find a signal in the noise when there isn't one. We've had some real success doing things with machine learning and AI, but equally we've seen a lot of holes that you could go down where the nature of AI is it always thinks there's a signal. And so if you let it run free, you will head down a hole. Now, if you go to the other end of the duration spectrum, in this whole time that you've been growing, you know, private equity has been growing leaps and bounds with great success. And I'm just curious how you've thought about that as a potential add-on to everything that's happening at MAN. So we do a little bit of private markets, like 3% of what we do. And I was the one that started that by acquiring something. I wish we did more private markets because it's clearly something clients are super interested in, keen on, and it has very good economics. Doing something that's good for clients and good for shareholders, of course, I'd like to do more of it. The reason we're small is... I only like to do things where we're really good at it. If we had a new public market strategy by hiring a team or whatever, we know we can add 20 more teams doing things in public markets. We don't need to add any more operations people, any more compliance people, no extra technology. We got all of that. It's it's like 100% integration benefit. When we started doing some stuff in private markets, we expected there to be a lot less of the synergy benefits. I hadn't realized quite how different so many things are. So one of the things, because of the breadth of what we do, we do a new vehicle basically every day in public markets. So a new fund or a new SMA for someone or a new version of a fund in a different jurisdiction And we basically bang one out a day. We strike a lot of NAVs because we're willing to be very flexible for our clients to give them the solution they want. Well, the stuff around a private market fund vehicle is just completely different than a hedge fund. And so we realized what we didn't know. We spent a bunch of time learning to make sure we've really got it. We're now growing in the space. It's quite hard to do inorganic things in private markets because you've got some of these private market businesses trading at 30, 40 times earnings. And so they're willing to pay a price that I can't pay for a business. But we keep looking on the same basis I talked earlier. Can we find someone who's got consistent value add? Do they look after their clients? Are they good people? Are they not full of hubris? There's a lot of hubris in private markets. And then can we make the economics work and we'll keep trying. But if we don't do anything, it's all right. There's an enormous amount we can do in public markets. But if we can do more, the more diversification you have in the business, the lower the risk in the business, the better the 
value for the shareholders. With all the advantages you have of size that we've talked about, the opportunities potentially in both expansion and private markets, I'm curious what you're most concerned about for the business and for investment markets over the next couple of years. Well, investment markets, we are clearly in a, by any historical standards, an extraordinary monetary and fiscal situation. And one day that will end. And personally, I think when it ends, it will be extremely messy. It's got to happen one day because you can't just keep increasing government debt and all other debt and having no return on capital and have asset prices go up every day. And so I always worry about whether it's about to change. I think the reality is far too many people spend too much of their time trying to predict the end of the current regime. We can think of the people who are famous because they predicted the crash of 2008. And people forget that they predicted the crash of 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. You know, as like you, know, you predict a crash every year and you predicted 2008 and you make a career out of it because you're famous for 2008. But that doesn't help clients. And all of our clients are long risk assets. Our clients are essentially a mixture of pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, those sorts of things. They're all long risk assets. They can be a little less long or a little more long, but they're long risk assets. So a complete repricing down of risk assets is really bad for our clients. And even if I think the best thing to somewhere between hope and expect to make money out of that change when it happens is trend following. We have a bunch of products which I think will make our clients a whole load of money in that environment. But it's not good because our clients are going to be losing more than we make them. I'd love them to have 50% of their money in trend following, but they don't. So that's big picture worry. But on a day-to-day basis, I put my most effort and time into making sure the culture's right, looking for any places it's wrong, because that is how we keep succeeding. You know, pleased to say in the time I've been CEO, we've been executing really well across a bunch of things. So we've grown well, we've generated good returns for our clients, we've generated good returns for our shareholders, we've been able to pay people well. It's like, but you only do that by executing a whole load of individual things really well. And so my number one thing is to look out constantly for, am I getting anything wrong in that? Presages bad behavior tomorrow that leads to a problem. Well, look, got a couple of closing questions before I get you. I know we covered some of them when you came on with Mario a little while ago. What's your most important daily habit? Well, the real one is a couple of pints of tea in the morning. From the point of view of your question, I really do a conscious reset to looking forward. I live my life on a mark-to-market basis. I sort of consciously every morning reset to don't worry about what happened in the past because it's happened you can't change anything so look forward what is it you're going to do to make the firm better today to help the people to help the clients looking forward and i i have a really conscious restrike to the looking forward every day i think that helps a lot you alluded to it earlier but your biggest pet peeve i did allude to it earlier and it, it is this thing about not going back. In the old fund of funds days, it was every time we sold a manager, the analysts never wanted to go back and look at that manager again. And you make a decision for a perfectly good reason. You should be willing to go back and relook at things and see, you know, and it's true across everything in the industry. People who lost money in a particular stock never want to invest in that stock again. Even 10 years later, they sold Amazon at the wrong place and you find that they've never bought Amazon again. And it's like, look, you can buy things at the wrong place. You can buy them at the right place. You can, But you should always be willing to look at the whole universe of opportunities and ideas afresh. And people don't. And it bugs me. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? So that one is easy. 
I mentioned earlier that the boss I had at JP Morgan, who was called Ramon Oliveira, was the best boss I've ever had. And I learned an enormous amount from him about how to manage people. And he, the first day, he said, look, it's very simple. My job, this is him talking. So his job, Ramon, was to deal with all of the noise, all of the pressures, so that I could excel at my job. All I had to do in return was never surprise him, good or bad, no surprises. It was amazing. It was all about him making me look good as long as I didn't surprise him. And I've tried to manage everybody in my life ever since like that, as opposed to the thing that we've all seen managers do where they want to look good and they'll throw anybody underneath them under the bus to make themselves look good. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is my wife. So we've been together more than 30 years now, and there is no chance that I could have succeeded in this career without both her support in the, what one would take as the obvious things being the the looking after the family, looking after me, but, but actually much more than that, she's the person that I talk problems through with. She tends to have a more aggressive answer than mine. One of the things when you end up running these sorts of places People will always tell you it's a very lonely job. There is nobody inside the organization that you can talk to that it's not a leading conversation. I can't talk to somebody about, yeah, I'm wondering whether this is working or not working. That immediately creates a bad impact you don't want to do. And you can't talk to external advisors because they're all got an ax and they're trying to make money out of you. And so finding people you can talk through a problem who will give you an entirely honest answer without any axe to grind and who will tell you you're an idiot when you're being an idiot, which is an important thing to, it's easy in these jobs for it to go to your head, right? I mean, there's a million people want to tell me I'm brilliant and I'm not brilliant. So having somebody who tells me I'm an idiot every day is a good thing. (laughs) So with all these charmed steps you've had, the skill and the luck through your career, what's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I've had a great career, right? And so I'm very lucky. And because of that, I don't have regrets about anything I did, if you see what I mean. If you were trying to say the biggest mistake, it would definitely be selling something, which if we hadn't sold it, the list is slightly long and proud. And while you might have been a bit more patient, and there was a good thing, somebody this morning sent me a chart of the Dow because you can't get the S&P going now, but going back to 1895. And you look at that chart, and with the exception of 29, where buying and holding for 10 years in 29 was still unbelievably painful, essentially at no other period in the last 100 and whatever that is, 20 years, has it been a bad thing to stay invested. And that's equities, and it's about the growth of the U.S. economy. And so we are all tempted in our investing to want to do things. And often not doing something is the right answer. So all of my mistakes would have been selling something when sitting on it for longer, it would have worked out. All right, Luke, last one. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My parents taught me from an embarrassingly early age about how interesting wine is. And I am mildly obsessive about wine. So it both gave me a love of wine, which has got me through a lot of time in life. But it also really what it did was to teach me the thing of, if you find something you're interested in, you should learn everything and anything you can about it. It's my definition of a nerd, is when there's something you're interested in, you just want to know everything about it. And I am proud to be a nerd and i'm proud to run a firm full of people who are nerds you pick any subject there's somebody in this firm who knows way too much about (laughs) it you couldn't possibly want to do one of the really cool things in the covid lockdown is we started a set of webex zooms where somebody would talk about their personal interest so i did one about wine and i talked for half an hour about and I was sort of knew that there were people with interesting habits, but I I didn't think people, anyway, 
wow, we got a flood of people who wanted to, yeah, let me talk about my, and you wouldn't believe the different things of that people could talk for hours about. And they were universally fascinating, even if you weren't interested in ever doing the thing, because it was somebody who was passionate about their subject. And I, I learned that from my parents and it's something I recommend to people. Terrific. Luke, thanks so much. Great to see you. Thanks for taking the time. Ted, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 